Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This summer, the U.S. men's national team gets to attempt to exact a small measure of revenge when they face Trinidad and Tobago in the Gold Cup group stage. I recently asked new U.S. men's national team coach Greg Berhalter about the game. I expected him to dismiss any significance and downplay any talk of redemption. He did the opposite, which was surprising and refreshing. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about Greg Berhalter's Gold Cup plans and future plans for the national team. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment where he's talking about the good and or bad of parity when it comes to leagues around the world and domestic leagues. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment, including playing soccer with a hangover and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you this, what, 12 hours after the moment that you and all of your GOTers have been waiting for, the return of Game of Thrones, a uh, series that I have yet to see? Was it everything that you wanted and hoped for? Uh, well, first off, I'm battling a bit of a cold today, but I'm a warrior, so I'm still here. Um, is that a reference to uh, Game of Thrones? Is that what happens? No, you, no, oh, no. No, really? I, I feel like everything that you and all your uh, uh, your friends say now is, has some sort of reference. I am left completely out. I'm not one of those that is, uh, is going to say, you know, uh, go against Game of Thrones and be the anti-Game of Thrones. If this what floats your boat, Mossy, you and your friends... Have at it. Enjoy it. But tell me, and once again, I'm living vicariously through you. Tell me, was it was it all it was cracked up to be? It's, it's already, it been, is, it's already it? been the subject of a heated debate in this studio. I was fine with last night's episode. I thought it kind of set the scene well for what this season's going to be. Alex Dowd, our producer, very unhappy, called it crap. Crap? Yes. Quote, unquote, crap. Yeah. Which I'm assuming isn't like a cool young millennial thing to, when it's cool, right? It's not... Like a Michael Jackson bad is good. This is this is crap. Crap is crap. It, crap is crap. That's unfortunate. That's not the way you want to start out. It's the, well, the final season, too, or the final uh, and, five and episodes. Keep in mind that previous seasons have been 10 episodes long. This one is only six. So that's part of Alex's argument. I think if this was a 10-episode season, he would have been fine with last night's uh, episode. But he feels like things need to move a little bit faster here because he only have six episodes to play with. So he was unhappy that... Uh, well, nothing they're, really they're happened. phoning it in now. Now, you as a uh, as a TV connoisseur, uh, not just a soccer uh, uh, savant, but famously the last episode of Seinfeld, one of your favorite shows, uh, did you give that a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Because it was incredibly divisive in terms of the way that everybody viewed that. 
Which was funny because uh, the irony is, although Seinfeld is my favorite show of all time, I actually think the last two seasons of that show after Larry David left were subpar. So the final episode was just in line with how the last two seasons had been. Actually, I thought it was it was kind of clever, the idea they came up with to get all those characters back. So I didn't think it was that bad. And and yet, yeah, the, the vitriol that, that it gets from people is kind of strange to me because, to me, like I said, it was just sort of in line with what the last two seasons of that show were. All right, my final question to you on this, uh, and then we'll go on to what we, we do, which is talk about soccer here. Has it, and I'm talking about Game of Thrones, because as, as everybody knows out there, I don't watch something that's in mid-flow. Uh, I wait till the end so that I can binge from start to finish. I need a finite type of, uh, of, of show to watch. So I'll watch this much later. Has it jumped the shark based on what you saw last night? No, no, absolutely not. No, I don't, I don't think even Alex Dowd would argue that. Uh, You're still willing to give it. Uh, yeah, I think by, by its incredibly it lofty end. standards, he was a bit underwhelmed uh, last night. But well, I've set the bar high, evidently. Yes. For your, uh, uh, by the way, this is a, a great period in TV for me because you also have Veep and Killing Eve, two shows that I love. So I had like a two and a half hour block of television last night, which was just incredible. And some people watch Barry too, which I've heard is a great show. I don't, so you could even have that too to play with. But So I've got Game of Thrones, Veep, and Killing Eve all going right now. All right, for all you potential mates for Mossy out there, just know that this is going to have to be part of your wheelhouse, all of these different uh, shows out there, right? Is that what we're looking for? If you were to come across a nice young woman uh, that, that for some reason found you attractive, she would have to have this in her wheelhouse, right? I don't think I'm in a position to put any restrictions <laughs> on Oh, man, you are a catch, my friend. I am telling you. All right, uh, en- enough of that. Well, I hope uh, I hope next week's episode is is better and returns it to the glory that it once uh, that it once was. All right, uh, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, let's get this thing started. As you know, each and every week we start off the pod with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective, and this week it goes a little something like this. October 10th, 2017, Cuba, Trinidad, the darkest day in U.S. soccer history. In case any of you need reminding, that is the day the U.S. men's national team lost 2-1 to Trinidad and Tobago, and in doing so, failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. It was an epic loss and an epic failure that reverberated through the American soccer community and ushered in an unprecedented era of self-examination, recriminations, and change on and off the field. The disbelief, sadness, and anger over the result still lingers. This summer, the U.S. men's national team gets to attempt to exact a small measure of revenge when they face TNT in the Gold Cup group stage. It won't exercise all the demons of this failure in 2017, but it will represent an opportunity to move on against the very team that was the architect of the U.S.'s demise. I recently asked new U.S. men's national team coach Greg Berhalter about the game. I expected him to dismiss any significance and downplay any talk of redemption. He did the opposite, which was surprising and refreshing. He admitted that the game this summer will have additional meaning and significance. In doing so, he acknowledged that the history of this team, good and bad, is not to be ignored or feared. It's to be embraced, and it can serve as motivation. If the U.S. beats Trinidad this summer in the Gold Cup, it won't solve all the problems. But it can be another symbolic brick in the road to redemption in the eyes of a cynical, negative, and scarred American soccer community. 
All right, Mossy, that's my uh, State of the Union for this week. And a reminder to all, we will have a special standalone State of the Union pod. It'll show up in your feed with a special interview with Greg Berhalter. He was nice enough to come in uh, this this weekend and meet with uh, the Mucky Mucks over there at Fox and talk to them about what they want, the relationship between Fox and the national team and U.S. soccer, uh, and just sit down and, and talk about things. And then we talked to him on our Bundesliga coverage, and he was nice enough as as I said, to sit down for a special interview with the State of the Union podcast. So that will be out. You will see it show up in your feed, uh, hopefully on Tuesday. But uh, I guess uh, now having spent a little time with Greg Berhalter and seen what his take is, and we said he's about, he's getting almost to that six-month mark, four games in, not a great sample size, but uh, your take on how he is thinking about the national team, and in particular, his thoughts on this Trinidad-Tobago game that's coming up this summer in, in the uh, group stage for the Gold Cup for the U.S. Well, first off, I really liked him. He was a super nice guy, and I enjoyed your interview. And you're not easy. Him. You're not easy, yeah. uh, you know, to, it's not easy to win you over. No, and I really enjoyed your interview with him, although I haven't seen that many softball since the days of Eddie Fainer. Oh, here we go. This um, is not nice. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds on the, the TNT thing. Uh, you're right, it was refreshing. 99% of coaches would have said, look, I wasn't there two years ago. It's uh, just another game. We're moving forward. And instead he said, no, there's definitely a revenge factor there, extra motivation. But uh, also, look, what happened two years ago was an aberration, and let's not act like beating TNT this summer. It might be therapeutic to some degree, but it's not that significant. It's not going to be like the U.S. laying down some big marker, so I don't want us to go too far in the other direction. But but as I said in the State of the Union, I think it can be a brick and a and a building block in the, in the resurrection and the redemption of this team. Because I think Greg Berhalter, in answering that, what he did was validate and recognize the fact that there is a large soccer audience out there. And by the way, the, the, the failure was so epic that it went even beyond. It transcended just the soccer community out there. It went beyond. People were legitimately angry and people that maybe don't necessarily follow soccer were legitimately confused as to how this happened. And that's where a lot of the criticism and the negative uh, type of feeling started. And it steamrolled after that. And it, it was part of the United States Soccer Federation elections for the president, all that, all that kind of stuff. And so I think when he's answering that, I think, as I said, he's uh, respecting and understanding his job of resurrecting this team in the eyes of the American soccer community and taking it on that, that ownership of saying, you know what, we have a responsibility, but we also have an opportunity to do so. And as you, as you said, look, Beating Trinidad and Tobago, even in the worst of times, wasn't really an accomplishment. And this summer, it will not be uh, an accomplishment in that we have for many, many years beaten Trinidad and Tobago. But it will be symbolic, and it will be something that you can point to before the game and after the game and say, hey, we're righting a wrong. And, uh, and it's just a step in a long, long process. But I do think it points out that Greg Berhalter, I think, recognizes his his long-term responsibility to return this team in the hearts and minds of Americans out there to the level, not just the level that it once was, but certainly back to that and then progress it and evolve it even more. And that th that's important because, as you said, he could very easily have just completely dismissed it and said, listen, this is a whole new era and we're, we're moving in a, a new direction. But the past, I think, is important because I think it's going to inform how we look at Greg Berhalter going forward and how we look at this new generation of players that are going to take this team going forward. There are two issues that every national team coach grapples with. How compelled are you to put players in the same position that they play for their clubs? Greg Berhalter seems unconcerned by that. He's going to put players 
where it makes the most sense in his system. But the other thing is, how important is it to be playing regularly for your club? And you asked him that uh, this weekend, and, and he wasn't sure how to answer it. It's a tricky one for U.S. managers because you want to encourage your players to go to the top clubs and the top leagues in the world, but then that might mean you know the increased competition, not as much playing time. How does that affect your national team status? So did you get a read either way on how he, he's going to react to that? My friend, form is fallacy. And if you ever wanted a graphic uh, representation from a national team coach about how true that is, uh, you will listen to Greg Berhalter and listen to the th- things that he says. And, and I asked that, it's not a gotcha question, because it is a legitimate question for all national teams. And the it's not a dirty little secret. It's just a secret. It's just the reality that there is quality out there that you, part of your job and your skill as a national team coach is to be able to take that player out of that environment and envision him or her being successful in a different environment. And yes, your form is going to be part of the assessment, but I think if you're Greg Berhalter, why would you ever want to say something that blankets everybody with the recognition that a player can be playing like crap for his club team and come and show up to the national team and be the savior? By the way, the opposite can happen. A player can be killing it on the national team, and he wants to give himself the ability to say, you know what? He or she, uh, and I'm, I'm saying he or she because it applies to whoever the coach is and for whatever national team, they need to look at that player and say, they're killing it from a club perspective. But guess what? They're playing in a completely different system, one that I, I, I can't put them in, and it doesn't necessarily translate. So I, it doesn't surprise me that he did that. And I think he recognized that going forward, he's going to have to make some very difficult decisions and some that he's probably going to come in for criticism for because of that form is fallacy type uh, of, uh, of situation that we often talk about here. Also, you tried to pin him down on, are you a romantic that's going to be bullish about playing a certain way? Are you going to be a chameleon? And when you need to be pragmatic, you're going to be pragmatic. And my sense is with Berhalter is the U.S. will always take the field with the intention of possessing the ball and and being on the front foot and imposing itself. But if a match unfolds a certain way where he has to adapt and they're just not able to do that, and the team has more of the ball, he's willing to adapt. Uh, But I think generally speaking, going into games, he does want to play a certain way. Did you get that sense as well? Well, it was interesting to hear him when I asked him that question. And I've asked him now on multiple times. And we we laugh about it off air and off camera because uh, he recognizes that I kind of want to have a history of his answers. And I've asked him the same types of questions multiple times because he's in a different place. And I want to see if his mindset changes for some specifics, but also some bigger, bigger uh, term, uh, bigger picture things, including whether he is a true believer, whether he is a true romantic, or when the going really gets tough, because look, it's not about beating Trinidad and Tobago. It's not even about qualifying for the World Cup. It's about ultimately being able to be competitive against the best in the world so that at some point the U.S. men's national team can win a World Cup. In order to do that, what do you have to do? And if it is about how you play, and I've asked him the question, is it and, and I asked him this this uh, when we when we when we talked about uh, this week, and I said, "Would you rather lose a game where you are living up to your philosophy and being romantic in the way that you play, and your players are out there doing exactly what you told them to do? Would you rather lose that game than get to a game, recognize that it's not working, change, and completely abandon your system, and play completely pragmatic and be completely?" and be realists in the way that you go about it and win that game. 
And his answer was funny, and I'm not even, I'm gonna I'm gonna tease you on that one. You should definitely go and listen to the uh, the pod because it was an interesting answer. But but ultimately, it is important to me because if at the first sign of challenge and difficulty and struggle, you abandon your principles and you abandon what you have championed from the beginning, then is it really a style? Is it really a philosophy? Or and and look, it might be for the American soccer public. We don't care how the results happen. We just care that the results are there. And maybe we're not at the point where we beggars can be choosers and, and we can care about how the results come about as much as the actual results themselves. Now, you've interviewed Jurgen Klinsmann, Bruce Arena, and Greg Berhalter. It's been portrayed this way. Do you get a sense in talking to each of them that Berhalter is more of a tactics wonk than the other two were? I, no. I think that Berhalter can talk the talk much more so than they can. Um, and, and I think it's natural because he's from a different generation and a generation that has been deluged and, and almost obsessed with the, the tactical part of the game and, and analytics and all, and all that. And that, that's not, I'm not saying that in a negative way. I think it's, it's good that he, that he thinks about it in this way. But what I am saying is just because he can talk the talk doesn't make him any better or worse of a coach than, uh, than anybody else. Ultimately, he knows that he's going to be judged uh, on the results. And when you do talk about how you are playing, and he has been really, really public and open and honest about how he wants to play, it gives us a, a much fairer uh, and clearer template from how, uh, of how to judge you. But it also means that if you don't live up to that, it's much clearer and less cloudy uh, as it has been maybe in the past when we are critical of you and say, well, this is what you told us you were going to do, and you were very clear about it, and this didn't happen. Uh, and maybe that's, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's what Greg Berhalter wants. I will say you know, that, you, that, you, that you have been, not spun, that's not, a good, that's not a good word, but you are under the trance, shall we say, of Greg Berhalter. And th- this, is, this is part of it. And don't think for a second that this isn't calculated in the way that he has gone out of his way, and much more so than any uh, uh, coach in the past, of trying to get everybody into the tent, of trying to be incredibly open and transparent in what he is trying to do. And he has won over a lot of people and a lot of cynical people out there just in a very short period of time. We will see if it continues when those results happen, uh, either good or bad, and in particular when it gets much more of a uh, pressure-filled type of situation. But look, so far so good. I told him uh, when I was talking to him uh, on camera, I said, look, I've given you a B. Uh, so far. And that's a good thing because it gives him something to shoot for. You know, we, we still got a ways to go. And we still haven't even seen him yet in one competitive game. These have all been, these have all been friendlies. So far, uh, so good. I look forward to seeing not just the game against Trinidad, but more importantly, this U.S. team this summer in the Gold Cup. Uh, once again, you can find that in your feed. Uh, it'll be a standalone interview. Uh, we sat down with Greg Berhalter. He was nice enough, uh, as I said, to, uh, to do the rounds and to give us some time. And we talked about the transition, once again, from being a club coach to a national team coach and the difficulty and the challenges that that poses for him. And I sensed a bit of frustration that he's going to have to work through because he doesn't have that day in and day out type of lifestyle that a, a club coach has when he has a national team coach. And he continues to, uh, to move on. He talks specifically about players, about Christian Pulisic, about Tyler Adams, a lot of different things uh, when it comes to, uh, to this national team going forward. And we will look forward to seeing him and this national team and what they do this 
summer in the Gold Cup, which, by the way, you can see on Fox. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, moving on. Hello, people. Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer, the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again, uh, the time for Mossy makes the case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case is that parity, or lack thereof, has become the defining issue in club football on both sides of the pond. In the wake of Sporting KC's two-legged capitulation against Monterey in the CONCACAF Champions League semis, which ended MLS's participation in the competition, there have been renewed calls for MLS to loosen restrictions on spending. There's a feeling that in the quest for parity, MLS has shackled owners who are committed to winning. The thinking goes that MLS would benefit from allowing super clubs to emerge because not only would they represent the league better in the CCL, but MLS would be more compelling if you had big bad villains for everyone to root against. The interesting thing is that the exact opposite debate is taking place in Europe where most people feel like leagues have become too top heavy. Certain clubs have separated themselves from the pack to such a degree that they're talking about breaking off altogether and forming a super league. Last week, Jonathan Wilson wrote an exasperated column talking about how league titles in Europe have lost all meaning and pointing out that it's not surprising that PSG are about to win a sixth league on title in seven years. Juve are on the verge of an eighth straight Serie A crown. Bayern are bidding for a seventh straight uh, Bundesliga title. The revenues of those clubs dwarf those of any other team in their leagues. So to recap, uh, too much parity in MLS, not enough parity in Europe. The correct answer is probably somewhere in the middle, but it's hard to find that perfect sweet spot. Invariably, you're going to tilt one way or the other. So which way should you tilt? I think the sporting cultures are such in the United States and Europe that the U.S. is always going to err on the side of parity in Europe. They're always going to err on the side of super clubs. But how these leagues on both sides of the pond manage this issue in the coming years is going to define the next era of club football. Interesting. Interesting, Mossy. This is an evergreen type of subject, but it's important. And it, it is, it highlights, as you mentioned, the distinction, both in terms of leagues, but I think also in terms of, of cultures. We all know that Major League Soccer, look, in its, in its 20 plus years, the reason why it has survived, and in some cases thrived, is specifically because of the structure and the single entity, and you can like it, dislike it, whatever, it doesn't matter, but I think you have to respect the fact that one of the reasons why this league st is still around is because of the, uh, the prudent way, from a business perspective, that it was set up with, as I said, the single entity, with the roster restrictions, uh, with the manufactured parity, and an adherence to making sure that anybody can win, but nobody gets nobody gets pushed too far behind. And there is plenty of counter to that out there. And as you mentioned, would Major League Soccer be better if we had the haves and the have-nots? Would it be better if we had teams? And look, there, there has already started to be some separation. But I, I'll tell you a story, Mossy. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, when I was uh, working in the front offices of Major League Soccer for a number of different teams, I remember a point where I made the public comment, so this wasn't an internal thing, I made the public comment that maybe it was time for the training wheels to come off of Major League Soccer. I was very quickly, but very, very politely, but also very clearly told 
<laughs> by uh, by the uh, the powers that be that no, this was not the time yet. I do think that there's a conversation to be had when it comes to Major League Soccer that it may very well be the time. And it really comes down uh, to business, okay? It is a little apples and oranges when you talk about your leagues over there that you, that you mentioned in your, uh, in your Mossy Makes the Case. Uh, they are from cultures that have a 100-year head start. They are from soccer-centric cultures. And while that separation is incredibly dramatic and relative to MLS, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, night and day, it is still a very different type of an environment. However, Major League Soccer is going to live and die uh, as a business on the ability to generate TV, the ability to generate, in, in doing so, generate eyeballs, the ability to generate sponsors, and the ability ultimately to generate uh, fans. So is Major League Soccer better served, like you, like you suggest maybe, of going in the European way? And maybe from a European perspective, as you mentioned, there may be better served going the opposite way. Uh, it's hard once it's out to put it back into, <laughs> back into the box, but I would submit to you right now that going forward, and the, you know, the TV contract is a few years down the line, but that next one's going to be really important because I think it's going to be used as a symbolic uh, type of thing as to how far Major League Soccer is and where and where it's going. Would it be more attractive as a league if you had these, and I'm going to use it, super clubs, two or three of those super clubs out there going forward from a business perspective? Well, it's funny because a lot of people in the last week have been banging this drum about super clubs, and they keep bringing up the New England Patriots as an example. And the irony there is that MLS's obsession with parity is completely inspired by the NFL. Yep. Uh, this was a raging debate in American sports in the 90s. The NFL adopted a hard cap. Baseball did not. From 96 to 2000, the Yankees had a much higher payroll than everyone else. They won four World Series titles in five years. Over that same span, a bunch of different teams won Super Bowls, the Packers, the Broncos, the Rams, the Ravens. And the NFL took great pride in the fact that we have a level playing field where everybody has a chance while baseball is boring and predictable. Now, the Patriots have come along and sort of turned that on its head. But keep in mind, the NFL is still geared around parity. Sure. The Patriots have built the uh, most successful franchise in American sports, despite operating in a system that's structured in such a way to prevent them from doing what they did. So don't lose sight of that, people that are they're bringing up an NFL team in a comparison, because the NFL is actually the model of parity that MLS tried to <laughs> Yeah, follow. but the NFL is not hurting for money in right. this current situation. And the NFL is not looking for ways to completely change the uh, the relevancy and the perspective of that league and the business of that league. Major League Soccer is. Major League Soccer has to figure out a way to continue to move forward. What they have to do is decide, is, is the current system the, the, the best way moving forward from a business perspective? Because if you, if you do take those training wheels off, and you do allow whoever is out there, and there's some that will, some that won't. Keep in mind, there's no promotion relegation. So that danger and that, uh, that risk is mitigated. You'll still have a, a, a public situation where if you're not spending, people will, um, there may, there'll be a chance for embarrassment, I guess, or shame out there. Why aren't you doing it? Why isn't my team doing it? But if you just let anybody do whatever they want, first off, it's, it's not what the league was founded and built on, like you said. But if, if that happened, and if two or three teams became those super clubs, once again, would Major League Soccer, and when you say Major League Soccer, just because those super clubs are doing well, keep in mind that it, it still is the collective. So everybody is doing well. If 
if all of a sudden the TV contract soared and people came to watch it, because you had these, these teams that as many people hate as love, because you had these, these teams that are spending ridiculous amounts of money and that separation uh, happened, would that be something that would be more attractive? Yes, for me it would. And it's something that they've grappled with in Spain. Now, there were seasons... Uh, recently in which Barcelona and Real Madrid were finishing 30 points above everyone else and they recognized, okay, that's too far. So they tweaked the way the television money is distributed to level the playing field a little bit. But Javier Tebas, the president of La Liga, was very honest about the fact, I don't want to go too far with this because I don't want to undermine the ability of Barcelona and Real Madrid to win Champions League titles. I like the prestige that comes with those teams succeeding in the Champions League. And so, you know, we talk about how a lot of this talk now is inspired by MLS's failures in the CCL. If you allowed uh, two or three of those Super Cubs to emerge, presumably they would then break through and finally win that competition. And I think overall that would bring a certain level of prestige and change the perception uh, globally of MLS in a positive way. So I think the, the positives do outweigh the negatives but, there. But if, if the shackles were off, and let's, I mean, I'm going to use teams as an example. Don't freak out. Okay, so let's say that LAFC could go out and spend as much money as they wanted. They're already a good team, but let's say they could go crazy. All right, so now they're now they're legitimately competing in the world in terms of the ability to spend. There's no shackles when it comes to the ability to, uh, to spend. And we know that you can spend as much when it comes to your designated players. But if you could just spend as much money as you want, put the product on the field, and then off we go. If that happened, and you could use NYCFC or, or any, any team out there, if that happened, but then on the other side, let's say, I don't know, Portland, which has been very successful, and is one of the shining lights when it comes to a smaller market team. But let's say that, and I love you, Merritt Paulson, but let's just say Merritt Paulson said, you know what, that's, that's fine and well, but I can't compete and I'm not going to compete when it comes to the amount of money that they're spending. Would the people of Portland still support that team knowing that just because of the money that's being spent, their chances of, of being successful and going to MLS Cups like they did last year are dramatically decreased? There'd be a int- uh, decrease in the interest level. So that would, be, that would be, I think, yeah, I think that would be the You the, think the people the that go to the Portland Timbers well, games are Portland- going there because of the specific parity that exists in MLS and that they each and every year know that at the very least they have a chance as good as anybody to win MLS Cup? Portland might not be the best example because that that might be the most diehard fan base in all. Right, well, but, Houston. But let, let's say let's say you set up a system where some franchises, just by virtue of not spending as much as others, were were consistently uh, lousy, and their fans got a sense that yeah, we're we're not really uh, competing in, in such a way where we're going to realistically be able to win. I think you, you'd lose some market. That would be sort of the casualty there, and you'd have to weigh the pros and cons of it. And like I said, I still think that the the positives outweigh the negatives, but that would be sort of the the drawback that you know you'd invariably have some some markets that you the, the interest would decline. So, but yeah, it's funny because you know you've mentioned how there has been an improvement. Uh, MLS had some seasons that I thought were just farcical where nobody won 50% of its games. And now we're starting to at least see some single season dominant teams emerge like Toronto two years ago, Atlanta United uh, last year, LAFC kind of have that feel this season of of a team that's going to be very dominant in the regular season. We'll see what they do in the playoffs. But the question is, can any of those clubs sustain it? And then you get into this whole other issue of becoming a selling league, which mm. everybody seems to be on that page that MLS has sort of gotten to a point where if you have a player and somebody in Europe comes in with a big offer for him, the right thing to do is to sell him. But if you do that, then it's going to be hard for any club to really sustain that success. And so that cuts into this notion of building a super club as well. So that's an element of this. It's very interesting. I mean, keep in mind, too, that... Major League Soccer right now stands as the most successful professional soccer league in American and Canadian history. But I, I can be convinced, and it's more and more so, that I, I 
think it's the time has come to take the restraints off and to allow MLS owners the ability to propel this league forward by, as we said, spending as much money as they want on their team. And yes, in doing so, they are going to risk more, both individually and collectively. But also uh, in doing so, as I said, I think that the league can become more valuable because as I said before, broadcast rights are huge. They are the lifeblood of any sports league out there. And we know that that next MLS broadcast deal is going to be seen, as I said, as a referendum on the health and the viability of the league and the business going forward. So I do think that MLS needs to do something and offer something new and different than they have offered in the past. And you know, a more progressive and a more attractive product for broadcast, that would be something interesting and something special. And everybody should know uh, we at Fox, we broadcast Major League Soccer. I have been in, involved uh, with, with numerous places that broadcast Major League Soccer. I want to see Major League Soccer succeed. And I think we're just spitballing here as to what going forward is going to make Major League Soccer as a league the most valuable property that it can possibly be. And maybe doing some things that haven't been done in the past uh, are, are the key going forward. But it's going to be interesting because, as you said, overseas, they're looking at it as maybe going the other way. Maybe we all just meet in the middle and we have one <laughs> big kumbaya moment and everybody uh, makes a lot of money uh, and is popular going forward. All right, anything else, Masi? That was That was awesome today. That's it. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for our Ask Alexi segment. You use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and uh, we answer some questions out there. Uh, what do the folks want to know this week, Mossy? At Golfer in Atlanta, at Alexi Lowell's, at Statman Mossy. Uh, Ooh. Always like when I'm included. Yes. Uh, love the podcast, guys. Great stuff. Why does MLS feel this need to continue to expand thusly? Wow, that's quite the wow. word. Uh, diluting an already <laughs> mediocre talent pool. Uh, as a writer, Mossy would never, ever include thusly uh, in any of the uh, copy that he writes out there. So when, when you see the likes of uh, Kate Abdo and uh, Rob Stone and even myself or, or enjoy reading off of a, a teleprompter, you don't see it, but they're reading into a teleprompter. Mossy is, is writing all of our words. You would never, ever use thusly, would you? Thusly sounds like a Kate Abdo word. <laughs> well, she would make it work. Rob she, Stone would never say Rob it, Stone would never Kate say Abdo something would. like that. Okay, uh, so wh why are you being so uh, uh, so small and so elitist in the way that you are viewing this? Why why would you not want to give the gift of soccer to communities and markets out there, golfer in Atlanta, in the form of a major league soccer team? So I, I don't think that it's diluting the talent because the talent exists in the world. I think what it's doing is, and, and by the way, when it comes to expansion, a lot of times we'll talk about the expansion fee. If there, there are, what, 20, 23 owners right now, and if the expansion is in the 150 to $200 million range, they're getting, what, seven to nine type of million dollars. Now, for most people, that's a lot of money, but for the owners, uh, these deep-pocketed owners, that's not a lot of money. So the expansion fee, while important, is much more symbolic uh, in terms of continuing to show how the asset is continuing to, uh, to appreciate. But the actual money that they get when you're spreading it around, and the more teams that you get, obviously, that becomes diluted. So that's, that's not a reason necessarily to expand. But... I was with the uh, the commissioner last week in Salt Lake, and we were talking about 
what an MLS team does for a community. And it's not just an MLS team, because I could extend that to a USL team uh, or any type of professional league. Once again, there's, there's ownership. This is representative of who we are as a city, as a community, as a culture, and we're using soccer to express that. And we're finding a lot of owners that want to use that in things that they want to do. And if you want to piggyback off of soccer to help your enterprise in a, uh, in a, in a culture, whether it's real estate or whether it's politics or whatever it ends up being, be my guest because uh, I think you're, you're using a vehicle that is unique and is special going forward. So why do they feel a, a need to continue to expand? The size of our country, the continued growth and the appreciation and the respect and the recognition and the relevancy of soccer in a community for what it can do even beyond the actual 90 minutes that people are paying money to go watch that team. I think there is incredible value to that. And the fact is, more and more of these communities, they want it. They see it as both a good uh, investment when it comes to their business and an, and an investment when it comes to their, their community. What are you doing when you're investing in your community? You're investing in the people of that community. And as these, as these markets continue to grow, soccer is very, very attractive to them. So I don't think that it's a problem. Once again, the talent pool is the world, and so they're still going to have to attract people from outside, but that's, uh, that's a good thing because there was not too long ago where that talent pool wasn't necessarily the world in that people didn't look at coming to the United States or coming to North America and the U.S. and Canada as a viable option from a, uh, from a playing standpoint, and that has certainly changed. So uh, to golfer in Atlanta, thank you, first off, for, for listening and, th and that you love the po podcast is, is wonderful, but I don't think that there is a problem when it comes to the continued expansion. And more importantly, I don't think it's going to stop. We are going to continue into the 30s, and we are going to continue on uh, probably even uh, further. And you're looking—you're already looking at the largest league in the world. And in 10, 20 years from now, it is—it it, it could possibly double. This is another example of what we were just talking about. Since its inception, MLS has had this dilemma. Do we model ourselves around other sports leagues in the United States mm -hmm. or other soccer leagues around the world? And in this regard, they've clearly chosen other sports leagues in the United States because NBA, NFL, and MLB all have around 30 teams. That's normal. It feels weird to the soccer fan because, like you said, other leagues around the world only have you know around 20 teams. So, uh, But this is the way they've chosen to go. Next up, at A. Vega Ortiz, who advances in each group in Gold Cup? Okay, so the groups are Group A, Mexico, Canada, Martinique, and Cuba. So out of that, I would have Mexico and Canada. Would you have anybody different? Now, I'm hoping Canada can really make a move I'm in bullish the coming on years. Canada. Alfonso Davies now. I mean, they, well, we've they done this before, though. We've done now. this before, though. Canada has, has, <laughs> has teased us before. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with Canada. So anybody, would you be different? Uh, no, Mexico, no, Mexico, Canada Mexico going through? Canada. All right, Group B, Costa Rica, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Bermuda. Costa Rica, and then, I'll say Haiti, but ugh. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't have a strong sense here, but I'll, I'll say Haiti, too. All right. right. Oh, man. Group C, Honduras, Jamaica, El Salvador, and Curacao. Jamaica and Honduras? Jamaica and Honduras, yes. Okay. Uh, and then Group D, United States, Panama, Trinidad and Tobago, and Guyana, U.S. and Panama. Yeah, uh, one note going back to Group C. Uh, one of my worst moments at Fox was in the 2017 Gold Cup uh, in the lead-up to the tournament, 
I made a in our, our meetings. I, I made a big deal about Curacao, how they could be a potential sleeper because I looked at their roster and they had like some real pedigree. All these sure. guys had played in Europe, and they turned out to be dreadful. I, if I recall, they lost all three of their group games. So well, I, double I, down, I, my man. Double down yeah, on this. So you think they'll be it's better funny than because Honduras and Jamaica? It's funny because Croatia was my sleeper in the 2014 World Cup, and they went out in the group stage. So when 2018 rolled around, I'm like, you know what? I'm not going down that Croatia <laughs> path again. They've burned me once. And, of course, you know, we know what happened. All right. Well, I mean, on the face of it, no real surprises. You know, El Salvador, you never know what you're going to get. And your, your Curacao, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure uh, that's going to happen. You know, between Trinidad and Tobago and Panama, uh, I'd yeah. lean Panama. Just they yeah. have they have pedigree at this level. Exactly. Uh, with Jamaica, uh, do we know what the latest is on Leon Bailey's? Is there any scenario where he would actually play for Jamaica? It seems like yeah, the scenario where he gets on a plane and goes <laughs> and plays in Jamaica, right? But I mean, I mean he's I mean, had enough chances, and he right. just doesn't seem that into it. it we we like haven't finding had, an we haven't there. had the decision type right, of right. Uh, so, press conference yet for for anything, right? Yes. So we, we it remains to be seen. He's still he's still in play. Yes, he's still in play. All right, uh, that was uh, for Vega Ortiz. Uh, what's next at uh, oh, this is an interesting one. What do we got? At uh, Rotor underscore Bolt, in your professional soccer planker, as opposed to your current one, how often did teammates play with a hangover? <laughs> teammates? You, you, you'd be surprised how many times I am asked this question. And usually it's directed specifically at me. I appreciate you, uh, Rotor Bolt. Uh, that you directed it at my teammates, uh, but that usually doesn't happen. Usually, and I don't know whether to take it personally uh, or not. So, I grew up in a, uh, a generation. It was it was the following generation from the real boozy type of drinking generation that exists uh, and existed in soccer and certainly in, in sports. But we were still um, much more so than. I guess uh, that I would I would guess the current generation, you know. Having said that, and I and I mentioned this last week on the on the pod, I was always so scared of losing my position, even at the heights of 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 whatever success I may or may not have had, I was always terrified and petrified of losing my position, uh, and so my debauchery, shall we say, was always reserved for. Uh, well before the game or and certainly always after the game uh, so it, it never and if it, if it ever happened it was never overt from others so that's what I'm talking about myself it, it, it just didn't happen it, if it happened for others it was never where I could <laughs> see it uh, smell it whatever it ended up uh, ended up being did it did it happen I'm sure it happened um, you know, guys uh, and in, in my case, it was guys. You give them money, you give them attention, fame. Uh, you give them oodles of time in which they need to fill, other than the two hours a day that you're training, and and things happen. So I think it's it, it's inevitable. But this wasn't systemic. This wasn't something that happened a lot. Uh, and this certainly wasn't, from a personal perspective, anything that, uh, that ever reared its head in my life or posed an obstacle for me uh, uh, going forward. And by no means am I saying that I was uh, ever an angel. As a matter of fact, the opposite. It's just that I, I from a I recognize now being older that at times I took things for granted. But even in the moment, I recognized that 
it could be taken away from me. And once again, I remained incredibly scared at every moment that it was going to be taken away from me. And I never wanted to do anything that was going to hurt the chances uh, of it. Believe me, I did plenty on the field that, that hurt my chances of, <laughs> of it continuing ultimately, but uh, I, never, I never did anything. I had enough problems and enough uh, difficulties and challenges just doing it when I was completely sober. Sonny, a player you played against, Romario, who was mm -hmm. famous for being one of the all-time big party animals, but never drank alcohol, never smoked, never did any drugs. Like People who knew him said, no, he, would, he enjoyed going to these nightclubs and dancing the night before games, but he'd be sipping on soda. You know, right. He made sure he stayed away from all that stuff. So. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it was, I think there is a mythology, uh, and I think there is, look, believe me, it, it happened much more so in the past, but there is a, they, you romanticize it, and it's, it's not romantic. As a matter of fact, it's it's very very difficult. And I think it's much more difficult in the modern day with the the training, with the measurements and the the uh, the calculations that go on, and the constant monitoring of the players. I just think it would be next to impossible to do it. But I, I can be proved wrong. So if there's anybody else out there that can uh, of the modern generation that wants to prove me wrong, uh, well done if you can do that. Anything else? That's it. All right, that's it for Ask Alexi. Please uh, use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and send us your comments and questions about soccer or uh, my drinking habits as a, uh, as a player or anything else out there that you want to know about me or Mossy or anything else. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for the Back Three where we look at some big stories and some games and some moments out there. Uh, what do we have this week? All right, we'll start in England where we have an incredible title race. Both City and Liverpool won this weekend. City beat Palace. Liverpool defeated Alex Dowd's Chelsea. Uh, Liverpool are uh, two points ahead, but they've played one more game. They have four left. City have five. So if both teams went out, City would win the title. Uh, I've said all season I thought Liverpool were going to win it. It was their year. And I really feel like it's trending that way. I think they're, they're playing the better of the two teams, and they have the easier schedule. They have Cardiff. Huddersfield, away to Newcastle, which is not easy, Rafa Benitez, and then home to Wolves. I think there's a very good chance they win all four. The only one where I think they could drop points is maybe that Newcastle game. While City still have home to Tottenham, away to Manchester United, home to Leicester, which is not easy, Brendan Rodgers doing well there, and then away to Burnley and Brighton, I believe, are the other two games. So, I, I you know, any stumble is going to decide the race. I just feel it's li likelier to come from City. What do you think? Wow. You just framed the, the ultimate construction of the breaking of hearts of Liverpool fans there. I mean, I, I, I've said all along that I think Manchester City, but I do agree with you in terms of the uh, strength of schedule or difficulty of schedule going down the line, that it is problematic for uh, City. But I will still say that uh, I think ultimately when all is said and done, there's going to be something that happens from one side or the other um, that ultimately lets Man City go through and win it. And then the other uh, great races for top four, you have Tottenham, mm -hmm. uh, Chelsea, Arsenal, and United all bunched together. Uh, keep in mind, Arsenal and Chelsea are on a collision course to play in the Europa League final, which would be an interesting little subplot here because obviously the winner of that game would clinch a Champions League berth right there. Uh, two thoughts on this. Uh, Harry Kane is likely out for the season, which a lot of people saw that and said, well, that's it for Tottenham. But, I mean, don't discount Pochettino. You know, he might not be able to win trophies, but he does have a knack for finishing in the top four. They came back this weekend and hammered Huddersfield, Lucas Moore with a hat trick. So just because Kane is out, I wouldn't count out Tottenham. The team I'm actually worried about is United because uh, they were very fortunate this week and had no business beating West Ham. They've not played well lately. The shine is starting to come off there. There's a very real scenario here. They got knocked out of the Champions League this week, which we're going to 
we'll talk about in a minute. They finish outside the top four. They don't play well down the stretch. So all of a sudden, kind of the the, the Solskjaer bubble bursts a little bit, and now they've already given him the job permanently. So it would wait, I thought you talked. <laughs> we talked about this. Only out now. Hashtag only out. That's it. God, I, I thought we talked about this, and he had earned the rights, and they were playing uh, uh, United, the United Way, and he's brought back the tradition, and uh, and he's not parking in Sir Alex's parking spot or whatever. I thought this was it. I thought this was the savior. You're telling me it's not a false prophet? That's it? No. Yeah, I'm starting to get that vibe that he might be out of his depth here, and it was just a kind of a new manager bounce and excitement of not having Mourinho there. And that's a and, hell of a bounce that you just paid a lot of money to. And, and by the way, the reason they gave him the job now, they said, well, it's better to have him in place to start our summer business, and that'll convince all these players to stay. And like literally the minute after they gave him the job, Paul Pogba started talking about how he wants to go to Real Madrid, and so I think he is perhaps going to end up going to Real Madrid. So I don't know what good the social thing wow. did if you're going to lose your best player. Wow. Well, uh, well I mean, look, as long as they have to. Hey, uh, they have a chance, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you're a betting man, uh, so give me two of those four uh, finishing top four. So give me two again where we are today. uh, You've got, uh, well, where we are today. Well, Arsenal, actually, we're taping this on a Monday. Okay, that's true, yes. It's tricky. They play Watford. But but they're all right around each other. Nobody really has much. I don't think Manchester uh, United gets top four. So it'll be two out of the three between Arsenal, Chelsea, and uh, Tottenham. God. And keep in mind, you could cop out and, and leave Arsenal or Chelsea out of it, but then say they win the Europa League, so they get in Oh, also. right, yeah. So if they go through it in Europa, then does that take somebody out? Or you can have five, right? You can have five. You yeah, well, have you five. can't have a six. So theoretically, if, if a team finishes, the team that finishes fifth and sixth win the Europa League and the Champions League, that would bump out fourth. I want a bump. But that's, 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 I love the bump. Remember uh, years ago when uh, that's we, had, we had Brad Friedel? Brad and, Friedel. Uh, <laughs> um, I want a bump. I'm, I'm predicting a bump. I'm predicting a bump. What has to happen for a bump to happen? Uh, exactly. so, Figure that out, Mossy. You're the savant no, so, over there. So if, if, if the team that wins the Europa League and the Champions League, both of them finish outside the top four, but they have to be in the Champions League by virtue of winning those competitions. So then you couldn't have those two and the top four because that would make for six. The, 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 the most you can have is five. So then the fourth place finisher gets bumped out in that scenario. So it's pretty far fetched, but you know it's. Uh... All right. So who's the who's the most likely to to suffer that? Uh, I the bump Arsenal. Basically, do Arsenal. You think, do you, Can you imagine? Do you think there's any chance, honestly, of Tottenham or Manchester United winning the Champions League this season? But Tottenham, Manchester, no. It's so that yeah, that's okay. what you that's need that to happen. Right, that to happen. Yeah, all right. That's no fun. Speaking right. of the Champions League, what what an incredible segue. Um, Take away, my man. What do we got? uh, The Champions League quarterfinals conclude this week, and we've got four English teams involved. Tuesday, it'll be Juve hosting Ajax. It was 1-1 in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Ajax, by the way, they're going to be minus Frankie de Jong, which is a big miss, but they dominated large portions of that first leg, played similar to how they played in the two legs against Real Madrid. So I think Juve go through, but I'm not totally discounting Ajax. They've got some magic going on here. And then the other game that day is Barcelona hosting United. Barca with a 1-0 first leg victory at Old Trafford. United, you know, they're drawing strength from the fact that against PSG, they lost the first leg at home 2-0 and then turned it around in Paris. But uh, Barca, a different proposition than PSG in this scenario, right? I thought the bloom was off the rose for Manchester United, right? That's, oh, that's it is. It. I don't okay. think they go through. Not, no, I don't think any of the, the 
I think the big guys go through like we talked about. I don't think there's any surprises in this second leg. It'd be interesting to see who starts Coutinho or Dembele. One postscript to that first leg, Coutinho played very well in that game. Even the Spanish media, which has been rightly so criticizing him, praised his performance, gave him very high marks, and yet there were still people on Twitter, a lot of Liverpool fans who were bashing his performance, including Keith Cossigan, which I haven't talked to Keith <laughs> about, but he was way off base <laughs> That's there. That's a Coutinho. low bar, though, I mean, when it comes to Coutinho, right? I mean, uh, I feel like you're patting him on the head. Good job, buddy. You're doing a good job. Now, uh, Dembele did play well this past weekend against Huesca, and he was the starter before he got hurt and was having a great season. So I could see Valverde putting Dembele back in there. We'll see which way he goes. Wednesday, Liverpool go to Portugal with a 2-0 advantage over Porto. Frankly, I thought they'd win the first leg by more and put this tie completely to bed. But still, uh, I expect them to go through. If they get one, Porto would need four, and they're going to get one. So that, that's over. The more interesting one is Manchester City now have to overturn a 1-0 deficit against Tottenham. And Pep got a lot of heat for that first leg, and rightly so, uh, because leaving De Bruyne and Sané out of that lineup was ridiculous. Uh, Pep, he didn't used to be this way at Barcelona, but ever since he got to Bayern and then City, he's a great manager, I love him, but he's got this little, like, overthinking it streak, and it reared its ugly head last week. Because, I mean, put out your strongest lineup for that game, please. And he didn't, and they got burned. Uh, I suspect he'll put those guys in there uh, this week. But if, let me phrase it this way, I mean, you think City go through, but Mm -hmm. if they go out, I mean, does Pep take a big hit here losing this tie? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I agree with you to a certain extent that at, at some big moments, and we can you know, look historically, he has, well, he has made decisions and they've lost the game. But, you know, he's in that position to do so. And does, is, he, is he overthinking it or is he actually doing things in, in terms of a method to their madness? And, and has he gotten to a point where he just feels he has to do something uh, as opposed to, to to throw the ball, out. I know he doesn't 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 just throw the ball out. But I think that there are there are managers that we that we focus on, that we give accolades to, that in those most important. And look, when it's when it's the elites, these are the games. These are the most important games. We don't. I was listening to someone today talk about the the win percentage of some of these coaches, and that doesn't that doesn't mean anything to me. Okay, if you're playing in the leagues, we talked earlier in the pod about parity and the lack of parity and the haves and the have-nots. If your win, if your win percentage for Pep Guardiola is something ridiculous, well, look at the, the teams that he's coached. Ultimately, we're judging him on these big games. And if in that moment he does things that you or I think are strange, I got to think that there is a, a, a reason for him doing so. But it also sets him up for if and when it doesn't go well. Of a of a problem, but I don't think he's going to do anything. You think he's going to do anything strange in the second leg against uh, back at home uh, against Spurs? No, I think he recognizes he got it wrong. And he'll put De Bruyne and Sané back in there and put his strongest lineup that he can. And do you think they go through? I think they go through, but it's only a slightly better than fifty percent chance. Wow! Uh, because you know, look, no Harry Kane, but they're still going to defend really they're well. They're not and bad without Harry him. Kane. So this that, that's yeah, not I mean, that's not a, a huge. It's it's a huge. You want him on the field. Because they are better with him on the field, but it's not as if they can't play soccer with him off the field. They've, right. they've proven that they can find ways to play soccer. Right. All right, we'll end on this Major League Soccer. There was a, <laughs> quite the incident uh, this weekend that I know you want to get into in the uh, Sporting KC New York Red Bulls game. Yes. Uh, involving Kaku. Yeah. Uh, take it away. So Kaku is, uh, is an in- interesting character. Um, uh, an enigma. Uh, he is undoubtedly talented. He grew up in Argentina, and that's where he came from. Although he plays, uh, his parents are Paraguayan, he plays for Paraguay. But he is a 
uh, as I said, an undeniable talent. Uh, there was an incident yesterday in, uh, and I'm, we're, we're recording this on Monday, so Sunday, where he was frustrated. Uh, the New York Red Bulls, the team that he plays for, were playing away in uh, at Kansas City, uh, Sporting KC, and he kicked a ball uh, with with venom and menace, and most importantly, with uh, with incredible power and speed, directly into the stands and hit a spectator. Now, he, as as you can imagine, it was the result of uh, him losing his mind and being frustrated and angry in the moment and letting and letting that overtake his better judgment. Uh, he, as he was red carded, which obvious, uh, even with or without VAR, everybody saw it happen. It wasn't even a question. He was red carded. You could see that he knew that he screwed up. And as he was made his way off the field, you could see the realization uh, and that that red mist start to dissipate and his understanding that, uh-oh, this is not good. Um, and in the way that he reacted. That's all, that's all fine and well. I think that he is going to get a six to 10 game suspension. I think they're going to come down hard on him and rightly so. And you can see it online. We'll, we'll, we'll post it and, and I've, I've retweeted it. And you can see it's really an act that is incredibly careless and reckless and dangerous and something that doesn't ever need to be uh, to have happened. That he and after the game, he apologized. Uh, the Red Bulls ha- have apologized, and I think, uh, as I said, that the the weight of the disciplinary committee and of Major League Soccer is going to come down on him, and rightly so. You know, in this day and age, where we ask, uh, we oftentimes when somebody does something wrong, and then doesn't apologize. We, we scream and yell and there, is, and there is outrage. And there is justifiable outrage for what he, for what he did. Uh, he has apologized. I can empathize to a certain extent in that I have been in that position where I have felt anger and I have, and I have felt the emotions. But you know, I talked to my, my, my 10-year-old and uh, he, he's got a little temper, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I explained to him that as he gets further in life, his ability to be able to control that and to harness it at different times and to use it for, for a positive and to recognize when that moment is coming on is going to be very, very, very important to him leading a productive life. And if he doesn't do that, it's going to pose problems for him going forward. And in that moment, as passionate and as excited and as emotional as it can, poss- as it can get in a professional soccer game, you have to be able to control yourself. And, and he didn't. That he recognizes that he screwed up and that he has apologized, th- that is important. But it doesn't mean that the punishment isn't going to be severe and appropriately so uh, going forward. So I don't think that the Red Bulls, uh, or you're going to see Kaku playing for the Red Bulls for a very long time. And if he needs any further proof as to the justification for what I think is going to be a lengthy suspension, he need only look at the video and recognize in that moment, thankfully, he didn't really seriously hurt somebody in the stands. And going to a soccer game, whether it's MLS or anything like that or or anything else, uh, should not be a dangerous experience. And it sure as hell shouldn't be a dangerous experience from somebody 
purposely kicking a ball from 10 yards away at a full force uh, into your face while you're sitting on the uh, sitting on the sideline. Did you see it? I did. At one one unrelated note, I had nowhere else to put this in today's pod, but it relates to the Red sure. Bulls. Uh, it was confirmed today. Jesse Marsh will be the yep. Salzburg uh, manager next season, which is a very good job. That that job is going to become available because Gladbach announced they've hired the current Salzburg coach, Marco Rose. And Salzburg, obviously part of that Red Bull family that Jesse's, you know, he's an assistant at Leipzig now and obviously coached the New York Red Bulls. So uh, it's a, kind of a seamless move for him. And it's a great move. Uh, Salzburg are one of the, the sneaky, really good, good clubs in Europe. They've won the Austrian League, I think it's eight of the last ten years, and they're going to win it this year again. They've been in the knockout stages of the Europa League several times. They got to the semis last year. They've had some really good players, Sadio Mane, Nabi Keita. It's been a good stepping stone for some managers, Marco Rose being the latest, Roger Schmidt, um, Adi Hutter to parlay success there. And to, so I think this is a great move for Jesse, and I, I hope he does well. Well, here's what he should do then, uh, because there's a player available, I think, from the Red Bulls, his old team, Red Bulls New York, uh, just came uh, available. It's going to be out for six to ten games, okay? <laughs> so I think his first summer signing should be Kaku. Uh, and this is a guy that's been itching, if you if you follow anything. He's been itching for a move. He's been bent out of shape. He, his agent's, uh, you know, popping off. And, you know, he's sending out crazy tweets and all that kind of stuff. So he, he is a character and a personality. And he's going to have plenty of time uh, to sit on the sideline and be a character and personality. Unless... Jesse Marsh brings him in over there, and he gets a new lease on life over there. But congratulations uh, to Jesse Marsh. It's always fun to see an American coach get an opportunity to also recognize that he's going to be under uh, under pressure and additional uh, scrutiny that maybe others wouldn't be, but it's nothing new that either he or any other coach out there or any other player out there uh, hasn't faced before. And uh, I know that he has the uh, certainly experience, the background, uh, and the tools to, uh, as you said, uh, a club that that has some real good potential uh, to be very very good uh, for him to go there, and I'm sure he'll uh, he'll learn a lot in uh, in that new adventure. All right, anything else from a uh, back three perspective, Mossy? No, that's it. All right, so we come to the end of yet another show. Uh, I mentioned earlier briefly that uh, I had been on the road last week, and I went to uh, to Salt Lake. I, I had the privilege and the pleasure of spending the day with the folks at Real Salt Lake, the Major League Soccer team there. And what they are doing there is, is something pretty special. And I know oftentimes we talk about player development uh, on the pod here. And is it, is it worth it? Should we be doing it? And when it comes to Salt Lake, what they are doing is something pretty incredible. The facilities that they have built for their development. The, the academy has their own high school out there. They go to their own Real Salt Lake High School out there. They have a indoor facility that is just immense the biggest thing that i have ever seen freestanding uh roof i mean i don't even know how the architect figured it all out and 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 how it works but it's an incredibly impressive setup that they out there it's a full complex out there and yes they have the space out there uh in salt lake but it just it it made me so happy to see what is happening out there because it's not just about developing the next great players. And yes, we're doing it th- uh, in the context of soccer here, but you know, their education and their education off the field is as important as their get education on the field. And I think that they are doing it right. Does this mean that Real Salt Lake is going to you know, be squirting out uh, every couple of years the best players that we have out there? I, I don't know. But the amount of money that they are spending, the resources and the structure that they have in place out there 
is wonderful. It doesn't just live up to other places. It surpasses other places. And there are teams around the world that would kill or die to have those types of facilities and resources when it comes to their full team, their USL team, their women's team, their developmental teams. As I said, they have apartments that are built that the kids live in. They have apartments that are built that the opposing team can come in and stay in. They have their own USL stadium, 5,000-seater, that's gorgeous right on the campus that they have out there. And this entire community is being built around the soccer campus that they have there. There was They were putting in a gas station there. So it's, it's, it's the centerpiece of a greater community. And that's what soccer can do if it's, if it's done right. So hats off and thank you to the folks at uh, uh, Real Salt Lake for giving me the tour. I was more than impressed. I was blown away by what, uh, by what you have. And I'll be interested to see how it continues to progress and evolve uh, the type of players that you that you are able to produce, but more importantly, the types of people that you are there to produce, because they're not all going to go on to star, but they will have had a background and a unique and interesting pathway that, is, that will make them the men and women that are going to not just score goals, but more importantly, uh, lead what I feel is the greatest country in the world. And that you are putting money into that um, makes me very, very happy. So thank you very much uh, for, uh, for doing that, Salt Lake. I hope to visit some other places and to see and compare and contrast what's going on. And just because something's happening one place doesn't mean that it, you're able to do it in another place. Salt Lake, as I said, has an owner who's willing to spend, uh, but also the, uh, the space to be able to do a lot of the stuff that they are, uh, that they are doing. All right, anything else, Mossy, before you head out? Nope. This time next week, will the next, uh, does it come out every week, the Game of Thrones thing? So will you have seen the next one? Is uh, it every Sunday? Correct. Oh, well, I, as I said at the beginning, I, I do hope for you and your uh, Game of Throners that it, it, it picks up going forward. So we don't have another situation coming in next week where people are underwhelmed. I will what? say, I know Alex Dowd was unhappy with it. Bear in mind, he was in a bad mood yesterday because of the Chelsea-Liverpool game. I tried yeah, not I, to mention it the whole podcast, and yet you, you're bringing I, it up here He had right a couple of tweets end, where so. you could see, sense the anguish, and so I think that might have influenced his viewing of Game of Thrones. So hopefully Chelsea win next weekend, and he's in a better mood, and he can appreciate it. More. Well, all of our moods, for better or worse, are often changed by the scores of soccer games. Uh, all right, so I hope that you have a wonderful week uh, and watch all of the soccer that's out there. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, listening to this uh, to this podcast. We really appreciate it. We will talk again uh, next week, same time, same place. Download, subscribe, rate, uh, send us your questions with uh, that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and uh, we will talk to you again next week. Size the day. 